0: I guess by now everybody's in school, is that right? Any holdouts? My kids are all in school, and my wife teaches two of them. And I've been thinking all week about uh, school, elementary school projects. Uh, Not all week, but I think about other things too. But uh, you know, we're in the swing of the elementary school swing, and there's these kinds of things, and I, I, there are projects from my elementary school days that I think of very fondly, um, I always thought were cool, there's even part of me that wants to do them again, um, and then there are the other projects, which it always seemed, those are the ones we always did, so I'll give you an example of cool, cool projects, in case you're a teacher, or, um, some form of educator, these are the things that, maybe not every kid likes, but these are the kinds of things I liked, and there's kids that were like me, so. At Least put them in your repertoire. Um, you remember the plants where you would, they gave you like the cup that would dissolve into like plant soil, but you could plant a plant and watch it grow. I always enjoyed that. That was fun to come to school and see your your lima bean break forth. I was always i 'm just saying if you 're running out of ideas, this is one to use. The lima bean ex- project was always a big hit with me. Another one, the volcano with the baking powder and the vinegar. You don't even have to teach if you do this one. You can do this every day of the year. <laughs> and it's a hit. It's just a hit. You should know this. If you don't, if, you don't, if that doesn't happen in your school, then shame on you. <laughs> Electromagnets. That was se- second grade I made my first electromagnet in class. That was a big deal. So that's another good one. So those are just examples of good ones. Things that, that some kids, kids like myself, boys who don't like to read and all they ever want to do is recess, those are the ones that, that will capture their attention. On the other side, there are the other projects. Now, there's more than two, but, but there's two that I'm going to actually be using today in the sermon, and so I feel like I have to talk about them, get this off my chest, resurrect them, clean them off, so here's the first one. The collage, the collage people. You know what the collage is? This is how a child interprets a collage. Sit down with the safety scissors and cut out pictures from old ladies' magazines and glue them on a poster board. That's the problem. It was that nobody has like tanks are, tanks weekly or. Dangerous Animal Monthly. It was always Red Book or <laughs> Southern Living. How do you do a collage out of Southern Living? So no matter what the subject was, there was always a smiley woman with an apple pie in your collage. Because it just had pages of of, of that. So I just I, I couldn't stand them. And the thing is, the thing that frustrates me about collages. There really is, I mean, there is such a way to make a beautiful collage. I mean, there's profound collages in the artistic world. It's just somehow it entered into the public school system, and now we have this poster board with apple pie ladies on them. That's the first one. The second one, which is even worse than the first, is the mobile. The mobile. Now, I I can imagine, I've seen attractive mobiles with, like, hanging hummingbirds and Or wind chimes. I understand there's a way to do a mobile right. Elementary school is not that way. It's the same as a collage. It's the it's the same dumb pictures you cut out, but instead of pasting them now, you staple them to yarn. You tie the yarn to a metal coat hanger. This is so bad, and it never balances. You know, you always you got one big object, so everything leans. It's just the worst. It's the worst. And here's the worst part about all of it is all those other cool things, really that's science. So the science teacher gets the cool projects and so the mobile and the collage is what the English teacher has to work with. So as bad as it all is, you have to couple it with a book report. (laughs) I didn't read my first book till college. (laughs) I mean, that was so painful just trying to Fake like you read a book. By the way, read books, children. <laughs> For what it's worth, I had to repeat kindergarten, and I'm not kidding. So, so I am not the model child, but I'm just saying. As bad as it all is, to double it up with a book report was the worst. Well, today I have to say, all that. I have to get it out of my bloodstream because today. We are going to make a collage out of, or actually a collage is going to be made for us in scripture. And I, and I think there's a way to do it well. And so you're going to need to use your imagination. We don't have glue sticks and lefty scissors. You're going to have to use your imagination. But it's more than that. It's more than a collage. It's a collage and a mobile. In fact, I'm going to call it a mobilage. We're going to do a mobilage today from Habakkuk, which at least means you'll remember something about the prophet Habakkuk. With that, will you turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk, the third chapter, which, if you're using one of our Bibles, is page 653. This is, by the way, the last week in Habakkuk. Next Sunday is kind of back-to-school Sunday for us. Uh, Our youth are going to play a primary role in the service next Sunday, so I encourage you to come and share with us then. And we're going to be dealing with a book that we read as a, a staff, Called "Do Hard Things," which was written by young adults for young adults, um, uh, encouraging them to challenge themselves in a world of under encouragement. And we're going to kind of just capture some of those principles and spend a few weeks on them. But that's what's going on next week. Today we're doing our mobilage in Habakkuk. And if by the time we're here in the third chapter of Habakkuk, all of the complaining is over. Okay, so Habakkuk complained to the Lord in the first chapter, why is my city so wicked, was his complaint. Furthermore, he said, it's not simply that the city's wicked, it's that the city's wicked, it's your people, and you're not doing anything about it, God. That's what Habakkuk said. He said, said, you see it, you're holy, you have the power to deal with it, and you haven't. That was Habakkuk's first complaint to the Lord. To which the Lord said, I hear you, Habakkuk. In fact, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. They're going to come and they're going to utterly annihilate the Hebrew people. Uh, they'll take you into captivity. They'll rape and they'll pillage. They'll destroy your buildings. They'll, they'll loot your temple. Don't worry. I'll deal, with, I'll deal with the justice of the city. To which Habakkuk's second complaint comes through, which is, you're going to judge us with people who were even more wicked than ourselves? And he kind of suggested to the Lord that the Lord didn't understand how to deal righteously with mankind, which brings us to last week, where the Lord finally responded with this statement The righteous will live by faith, Habakkuk. That essentially what the Lord was saying in Habakkuk, in the, in the second reply to Habakkuk, was that at the, grand, at the end of time, or and when all the balance, everything comes out in the balance, that the Lord's going to find, he'll see the wicked, and you'll see the haughty, and you'll see the arrogant, and they will perish. And they'll see those people who cling to the Lord through steadfast faith. And through their steadfast faith, they will live. And the Lord says to Habakkuk, that's got to be enough. Stop complaining to me about the particulars. I'm going to see the wicked and they'll perish. I'll see those who hold on by steadfast faith and they'll live. That's my answer. I'm done talking. And that's kind of how it ends. In fact, chapter 2, verse 20 says, Let all the earth be silent before him. And that's the final words of the Lord. And so now we are returning. This isn't a way Habakkuk's, not his complaint or not even his response. It's it's a prayer that follows up the exchange he had with the Lord. The Lord has spoken, Habakkuk has heard it, and he returns with this prayer that, that we have here in the third chapter. Now, this prayer is actually kind of a song, really. Well, we think it's a song. We're fairly certain. There's a few reasons we know that. The first is, uh, you see in the side margins the word Selah. You'll see that in the Psalms, too. If you ever read the Psalms, you'll see the word Selah. We don't know what that means, so we've left it untranslated. It's never been... No one's ever quite figured out exactly what it means in a convincing sort of way. So we leave it there, but we typically know when we see it that there's some kind of rhythmic or musical nature to the reading. That's what makes it a psalm, or that's some kind of song. So, there's Selah, plus if you're not really, if you don't really, if you're not up into your Hebrew, if you look at the very last sentence of the book, it says, for the director of music, which is the e- easy way to know. That yeah, it's a psalm. And then there's this word in the front, uh, which may confuse some of you. It, it should confuse us, because none of us know what it is. Shigionoth. We've left it untranslated, because we don't know what to translate it as. And some people think it has to do with music. So essentially what's happening is the Lord has spoken. Habakkuk is replying, but he's replying in a prayerful song. It's, it's, it's a return, and it's quite a bit different than his original attitude. His original attitude was fairly loud, fairly confrontational. This one is going to be much more um, holy in its demeanor. And so... We're going to kind of work through this prayer. Now, the way the prayer is structured is there's a few verses that kind of lead into the prayer. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on those. And then there is this vision that the prayer song puts forth. From verse 3 to 15, this is actually where Habakkuk begins to kind of make this this collage or this mobile it's kind of hard to say but he's going to to grab images out of the old testament narrative and he's going to imagine he's going to cut them out of the bible he's cutting all these different images out of the bible and some are going to be very clear and some are going to be somewhat obscure you may have no idea what some of them are but he's going to cut them out and he's going to put them all together to build a picture of how god's going to really judge the earth but it's not exactly like a collage because what he's also going to do is he's going to suggest that what God has done, he's going to do again. In fact, what God's done, he's not only going to do again, he's kind of doing right now. Habakkuk is kind of in the midst of it all. And so this is why I call it a mobilage, because it's spinning around Habakkuk. It's not just something that happened, it's something that's going to repeat itself. It's, a, it's almost kind of a, a way of making a collage that kind of ref- has motion, or time, or... Or it, it, it has about it its own flowing nature. And and that is going to be happening here towards the middle of the prayer. And then we'll close, of course, with the end of his prayer. But with that said, let's let's take a look. Let's let's look just for now at the first two verses, and primarily verse two. It says this a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionah. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. That's quite a bit different than the beginning of the book. The beginning says this, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? I cry out to you, Violence? But you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? That's the attitude Habakkuk has at the very beginning. Now you have Habakkuk saying, I stand in awe of your deeds. Do you hear the difference? One saying, why don't you do anything? You don't ever do anything. You just It happens. All this injustice happens. You don't do anything. And now Habakkuk is in a position where he says what? I stand in awe of your deeds. I see what you do. Now has the Lord actually done anything in this book? Hasn't done a thing. He's just talked. You know, I think what happened, and this this happens with us, is when it goes for a while in, in, in life or among a people where God is not very vocal, we begin to think that the stories of old are exactly that, that they're disconnected stories that once happened, but they don't really have any bearing on the situation at hand. We begin to think that way. Certainly, Habakkuk began to think that way. He began to see, look, around me is is, is a world where God is not active. He's not doing what he said he would do. And Habakkuk began to kind of separate the God of, of his Old Testament, right? I mean, all these things are even old, even for Habakkuk. Some of them, a thousand years old. And his conversation with the Lord, what it did is it brought Habakkuk back into the events of God in such a way that God is saying to him, look, The things I have done, I will continue to do. It's very different for us when we begin to realize we're part of the narrative God's telling. That, That the Bible wasn't simply written a long time ago, but that in a sense, in a sense, not in a scriptural sense, but in a very real sense... The story of God that God's telling starts in Scripture, but it weaves into us as well. I mean, when we pray to the Lord, we can trust that the very same nature of God that's displayed here can be displayed in our life as well. And that's what Habakkuk's doing here when he finally says, I stand in awe of your deeds. I think what he's saying is, I see what you've done, and now they're relevant to me because I know you'll do them again. We certainly have the right to pray that way. But there is this verse 2 where we've got to be careful how we read it. So so look at it here with me. Uh, I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. Now, if you left out the very last line of verse 2, in your wrath remember mercy, just leave that out for a second. Because I think... I think our tendency, if we hear something like this, Lord, I've heard the fame, your fame, I've, I stand in awe of your deeds. When we hear that, if it's not coupled with, in your wrath, remember mercy, what is your, how, how does your mind understand those comments? I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. I imagine in our minds we have the tendency to think that Habakkuk's kind of, making us think of the praiseworthy things God has done. The wonderful things he's done, the way he made the earth and Eden and, and the glorious things, kind of like a, a praising psalm, a psalm of ascent. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That kind, of, that, that kind of voice is behind it. If in your wrath, remember mercy is not part of the second verse. But if it is part of the second verse, what is the context of his comments now? I remember your deeds of long ago. We knew them in our time. What is he talking about now? What is is the point of of Habakkuk? What's the point of the whole book? Let's think about this. Habakkuk is praying to the Lord. Why did he even come before the Lord? Was he just asking God for God to bless him? Is that the reason that the book of Habakkuk exists? I stand in awe of your glorious deeds, the way you've blessed your people. Is that what he's saying? What about revival? This is what always this is what always happens is, is the church every time the church starts to go south, we begin to talk about revival, and that's our prayers. Is that what Habakkuk's been praying for? Is revival? I stand in awe of your marvelous deeds, renew our spirit, Lord, in your time. Is that what he's praying for? I don't think so. In your wrath, remember mercy. Do you remember when Habakkuk began to pray? He was praying that God would judge the earth. Not just the earth, more specifically, right? Habakkuk wasn't praying that God would judge the Babylonians. He wasn't praying that God would judge the kings. He wasn't praying against the Egyptians or the Canaanites. Who was Habakkuk praying against? Who was Habakkuk's, the source of Habakkuk's complaint? Was it some foreign power? No, it was Hebrews. Habakkuk was praying to the Lord, dear God, do you see how evil your own professing people are? When are you going to deal with them? That's that's who Habakkuk's praying about. Habakkuk's not praying about some foreign people. Habakkuk is praying to saying, there are people who claim to be your people. They place themselves beneath your name but they have become so wicked and so negligent of your own righteousness that they deserve to be destroyed. When are you going to do it, Lord? That is the prayer of Habakkuk. He's praying against the church. I mean, if we just translate the idea. Not, not, not the true church. The apparent church. The, the, the people of God, but you've got to do that, right? The people of God with your fingers the people who profess to be of God, the people who profess to be the church, but they're really a part of no church at all. They, they come, they, they're members on paper, but they're not members of God's family. This is who Habakkuk is praying against. Not the believing church, the professing church. Not the real church, the apparent church. The church that appears to the world as, oh, that's the church. The church that those on the outside would look in and say, that's the church. Just like in Habakkuk's time, they would look into the walls of Jerusalem and go, those are Jews. Those are Hebrew people. Those are the people of Yahweh. Habakkuk is saying, Lord, to the people of Yahweh, when are you going to destroy them? Because they've become so wicked. The apparent church. You know the apparent church is a church where godliness becomes assumed. Think of it this way, it's where godliness becomes assumed. That just to be here, the assumption is you're godly. Why? Because because of the architect, well not in this case not the architecture, right? But in most fancy cases there's architecture that brings upon it assumed godliness. Or there's family heritage that brings with it assumed godliness. Your great-grandfather, your grandfather, so many people. Everyone we know has been coming. There must be godliness there. The number of people come creates this attitude of apparent godliness. The amount of money or some of the things that we do in public creates this appearance of godliness. Those things have no bearing on godliness. It's apparent, church. And the parent church is a church when salvation and blessing become expected from the Lord, and God's opportunity to preach righteousness becomes constricted so that the language of the church becomes more and more about how God will bless us, how he will give us something, how he will fix that and heal that and bring that and change that and improve that and give that and how he, the, the, he wants to do so much for you. And this is, this is the message that, that the apparent church would love to, love to allow to be said again and again and again. But anytime God wants to stand up and say, I'd like to speak to you about your family life, well in the apparent church those times are few and far between if you come on wednesday nights 9:30 to 11 we'll talk about the righteousness of god now we're tempted i assume we're tempted i'm tempted <clears throat> when i'm thinking of faithful versus apparently faithful or church versus apparently church i'm tempted to come to the conclusion that i'm faithful This is my temptation. I'm doing great. Uh, That's the first temptation. And the second temptation is to say this church is a real church. It is not an apparent church. I think that's true. I think I'm faithful, meaning pursuing God. I do think this church, by and large... This church, you know, if you could reduce it to one idea, is a living church. It seems that, that there is a desire for righteousness. It seems that people want to know what God says about things. It seems that there is a, a seeking to be patient on the Lord when, when there's hard times. Those things seem to be the case to me. But I have to acknowledge the fact that in a, people in apparent churches think they're in real churches. Nobody thinks they're in a fake church. Why would you waste the time? You see, this is what happens. It's through our own hard-heartedness. It says the Lord gave us over to our own hard-hearted desires. We want something, and we won't let it go. We, want, we have this arrogant attitude about what things ought to be and how they ought to be. And finally, the Lord says, fine, have it. Have it your way. And this happens in the church. And so, and so there are times when we could be engaged in things that are apparently Christian. Not really Christian, but we think they're Christian because our hard-hearted desires have made the dictates of our soul paramount. How do you know if we're not in an apparent church? Well, I think nervously asking the question is a start. Humbly asking the question and humbly reading scripture and seeing and allowing God to push in uncomfortable ways. I'm gonna I'm gonna offer one example. There are multiple examples. So for the past month or so, I've been challenged with Christ's teaching on money. Just just myself and my family. You know, there's these times when the Spirit doesn't speak to you about something, and it's it's like you get to a place where the Spirit says, I've been waiting for you to get here, now let's talk. So I'm in that place. The Lord's talking. And we're asking very hard questions like, if we come as a family to a place where we believe something is true, are we willing to obey it? So And that's that's our own issue. But this is is what I've noticed in in this brief journey is how often the teachings of Christ about money, the warnings of Christ about money, the cautions of Christ about money, the very, very dangerous information that Christ gives us about money, how often it comes to people who are apparently Christian. He's not giving these things to the pagans. Almost every time you find it written, he's speaking it to people who think they're righteous. Particularly people who have enough behind them financially that they can comfortably and leisurely mimic faithfulness. Christ says to these people, It is money is dangerous. It is a deceptive idol. It will trick you. Do you, do you hear how the relationship is here on apparent faithfulness? The Lord is saying to us, this, this thing will come in and it will trick you. You'll think you're faithful and you won't be. Walk away. Let go of it, or it will not let go of you. This is the teachings of Christ. How, he, how easy is it for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God? Not easy. No matter if you boil that teaching down till it's hardly anything is left, you're still stuck staring at the fact that the wealthy have a harder time entering the kingdom than the poor. That something about money speaks with a witchy way to us. And then I sit here and I go, well, how would that reflect on our church? So these teachings applicable to our church. And this is the hard part because we are on the top of the world. Like if these teachings, these very difficult teachings, have any place to land and live, it has to be here. Who else where else does it go? Where else is the wealthier church? Is it in Zimbabwe? China? West Virginia? Montana? Laurel? Now look, I'll, I'll cork the bottle. The, 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 this is not a sermon about money. It certainly is not. And the text is not about money. This, what I'm not trying to do is teach about money. The Spirit is working in my own life, and I'll let Him work in yours. What I'm trying to do is to bring us to a place where we can each, in our own humble way, understand with humility the danger that happens with what we can think as being faithful is really apparently faithful. What we, think, we can think of ourselves as, well, we're the church, when there may be someone like Habakkuk going, when are you going to do something about those people? I just want us to be spotless before the bridegroom. And this happens. This can happen in multiple ways, right? So money's not the only issue. The way way our modern church has let go of the family is subject to God's indictment. The way our church has softened its position on gender and sexuality issues has earned stern indictment from the Lord. There are so many hard things that we have to be so careful about saying. Why? Because there is the appearance of faithfulness within us. I just, I just want us to bring, come to a place where we can feel the hard edge of the apocalypse of Habakkuk. The hard edge of it, not the easy edge. Of it. Because the, the verse ends with this. In your wrath, remember Mercy. Habakkuk is saying, Lord, come. Come do what you must. Come do what is consistent with who you are. Come salvage righteousness and justice from this planet while it may still be found, but in your wrath remember mercy. That's what he's saying. That's his prayer. His prayer is not, Lord, avoid avoid Jerusalem. It's, Lord, if you need to lay, lay waste to Jerusalem, lay waste to Jerusalem. But be merciful to those who cry out to you. In your wrath, remember mercy. There are there's, there's two statements, one last week and one this week, that I think encapsulate the gospel, and what I think is a beautiful elementary way. This morning, in the statement "In your wrath, remember mercy," I think sheds valuable light on salvation of Christians. That our salvation is happening amidst the wrath of God. That we cannot, we cannot talk about the salvation that we have through the work of Jesus Christ, through his death and through the resurrection that God gave him. We cannot cannot talk about our salvation to new life without understanding that it's happening in the midst of wrath. That God is saving some and not saving others. That some are perishing, many are perishing in the city. Many in the city are perishing. Few are being saved. That is the stage of the gospel. But it's so elementary. Just like last week. Last week had one of these very elementary teachings. But the righteous will live through their steadfast trust. That That is so true. And it's, it's a deep dimension into the gospel. That, that the kind of saving faith we're talking about. When someone says... You You just need to believe in Jesus. When did you first believe? What is this belief? The kind of belief we're talking about is not cognitive belief. It isn't trivial belief. It isn't informational belief. It's the kind of steadfast trust that says he will not fail us when wrath comes. That's it. Wrath is coming. God is going to thresh the nations. Steadfast trust is saying, I will live through my faith in Jesus Christ. That's steadfast trust. But they're they're elementary by themselves. And so what, what I want to do is last week and this week, we, Terry and I have been talking. We want to make sure. We want to make sure that we understand the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just ele- in an elementary way, but with clarity. With clarity as to what it is. Because it, it's built on righteous living by faith and by God's mercy amidst wrath. But th- this is who it is. This is who the gospel is that this righteousness that comes to us comes through Jesus Christ. In fact, there is this part. I'm going to go over my time now, but you've got to hear it. Chapter 2. So last week, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. I just found this so beautiful. Uh, 2, verse 3, it says, For the revelation, the revelation, which is a feminine Hebrew word, awaits an appointed time. It speaks of an end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. Now some of you may have um, a note on the bottom of three that would say this, though he linger, wait for him. Because this is the odd thing, the somewhat inexplainable thing to the Hebrew scribes that were translating these things, is the revelation's coming. Though, you know, it speaks of an end. It Well, all of those it's have a feminine connective kind of a language thing saying it's referring to the feminine word revelation. When it gets to though it linger, for some reason the Hebrew people used a masculine there that find you can't find any word around that it's tying to. So in other words, what 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 the Hebrew writers are saying is the revelation it's coming, it speaks of an end. Though he linger, wait for him. They just didn't know well who's the he? But this gospel, this gospel, this faith in whom we place, this steadfast faith is a person. That person is Jesus Christ. It is through the death and resurrection of Christ that our righteousness comes. That Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Just like Philippians says, it's through trusting in Jesus Christ and his work that we have any hope of mercy amidst the wrath. It's more than just having faith. I've heard people say, you just got to have faith. No, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. Actually, you need steadfast faith that will not let go in Jesus Christ. And then you're fine. That's the gospel. But Habakkuk ends, Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. And then he gives us this mobilage of what is it going to look like. I don't know if it's a vision he got or if it's in the mind of Habakkuk imagining what would the judgment of God look like, but this is what he does. For the next set of verses, 10 verses or so, he begins to, to cut out, like I said, these images from the Old Testament account. And he just glues them down, or, or he staples them up. I don't know, it seems. But he begins to kind of assemble them as to say, this is how the judgment of God is going to look. This is how he's going to come. This is how it's going to feel. This is how the presentation of God's going to be. But there are echoes of these images all through Scripture. And so he's going to say, God is full of brilliant light. And the writer and t- Paul and Timothy is going to say, the light of Christ and God is, is unapproachably brilliant. And he's going to talk about how he's coming from a holy mountain. And the writer in Hebrews is going to say he's coming from a holy mountain. He's a consuming fire. And he's going to say things like he's part of the waters or he's used the waters to crush the earth well, and it makes us think of Noah and how, how Noah has, was, was saved, even though the water came out. He's going to use all of these things. And, and it isn't one long story. You can't sit here. You won't be able to sit and read it and listen and say, oh, this is the story of the Egyptians. It's not. It's the story of the Midianites and the Egyptians and the people that Joshua subjugated. And all of these different images are going to start flying in, and they're building. When God comes, this is how it will be. So listen. When God comes... God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. That's a that's way of saying he is so holy. He goes, starts and says he comes from the holy mountain of God. And he says his, glo- his glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. Do you see the beauty, the image there? He's saying the mountains themselves, who we always think, well, as long as the mountains are here, they're permanent. He says the mountains crumbled. The foothills gave way. But God's ways are eternal. And then he selects age-old enemies of the Hebrews. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish, And then he begins to ask questions about this devastating appearance of God that makes the mountains shake and the earth tremble. Where does it come? He says, were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon st- stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. And then it says this. Listen, why? You know, He says, is it because you were mad at the rivers that you did this? And then he says, no. Listen in verse 12. In wrath you strode through the earth and in anger you threshed the nations. God's coming. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. This is the image Habakkuk is giving us. The image of a God who has come in the past. An image of a God who is coming. He is coming. And he's coming not because he's angry with the earth. But because he's angry with the nations. That God is going to come. That God is going to land on this earth. And it will be like a brilliant light. Like lightning flashing from east to west. Have we read that somewhere? That he is coming to demand recompense for all of the wickedness on the earth. He's coming And in his wrath, he will be merciful to the deliverance of his people. You see this? Verse 12 and 13 is, in your wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, he strode through the earth. And in your anger, you thrust the nations. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. God's coming. His coming again is going to do two things. It will judge and it will deliver. In the same motion, God will judge and deliver his faithful. This is the image given to us when Habakkuk hears it. He says this. I heard and my heart pounded. This is verse 16. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come. On the nations invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fail and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Do you hear what he's praying? He's saying, I know what is about to happen is gonna hurt. He's not praying for deliverance. He's saying, I know that the righteous acts of God, that God's judgment on the earth as it comes, in his case, as the Babylonians come through, that certainly Habakkuk's gonna be subject to some of the pain that comes through that. God's not gonna whisk him away from that hardship. He's gonna be there. He's gonna be there and watch famine hit, and he's gonna be there and watch everything give way. (laughs) and everything give up. And he's saying, I understand that. I understand that in this life I will not enjoy the kind of blessing that you're calling me to have faith in. That I have steadfast faith in a time later. And for that I will rejoice. Our prayers to God, our relationship with God, our our demeanor before the Lord should be one that welcomes, welcomes and prays first and foremost that his justice is And his righteousness is made manifest on earth. Even if it means that we have to brace for the impact. In his wrath, remember mercy.